Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Evolution Medicine Podcast. This is a September edition, and I'm enjoying a very, very lovely late summer day uh, in the Ridgecrest area of Albuquerque. We're outdoors. It's a blue sky, and I'm joined with Coffee Brown, and Coffee is uh, one of the members of the Evolutionary Medicine, members of the uh, Emergency Medicine Department at the University of New Mexico, and is a fantastic teacher. And, I, and Coffee invited me to speak to some of his students at the uh, Emergency Medicine Services Academy, or EMS Academy, a few days ago. And I think that the, his students are remarkably lucky to have him as a, as a teacher. And I would also suggest that not only do they get this incredibly well-rounded education on their way to becoming a paramedic or uh, another allied health professional, but they also are probably unique in that they learn something about evolution. So, Coffee, tell us a little bit about, about the class that you teach. Now, that's a funny thing that you mentioned evolution. Uh, one of the things I say at the beginning of every uh, class here is that I know that in this room, statistically, some percentage of you don't believe in evolution, don't like the word, aren't comfortable with it, and, and feel even perhaps vaguely threatened by it. But medicine is a scientific discipline. It's based on the science of biology, and modern biological science is very much rooted in evolution. Um, I respect these differences, but honestly, I agree with the point of view that nobody doesn't believe in evolution. Either you don't understand it, or you don't regard it as a belief question at all. After all, everybody knows you can create new breeds of Drosophilus in the span of a couple of weeks. Uh, Doberman pinchers are, were developed after World War II. Uh, we've seen that the, uh, there's a breed of short-legged cat that came from a single mutation that occurred in my lifetime. It occurred about 20 years ago. I'm not sure it should have been developed into a breed, but it was, and another type of cat I'm not aware of that one. called a pixie bobtail uh, appears to be a hybrid with a bobcat. It is not, but it looks for all the world as if it is. And that was a breed that was developed specifically for the exotic pet market. The uh, background note that you hear is the military base. They sound uh, alarms and okay. sirens and things for various reasons. <laughs> so... Evolution is something we see happening in front of us. It explains a great deal of biology, and it's hard to talk about biological science without it. That said, I promise my students, I will never ever ask them, do you believe in evolution? There will be no graded question ever. In fact, I've never asked them even in personal conversation, do you believe in evolution or not? I don't care. You can come up with your own model if you want to. Well, that's true. And even in, in my yeah. class, my class on evolutionary medicine that I've taught <clears throat> at the uh, University of New Mexico Department of Biology for, for many years, I don't care if people have deeply held religious convictions that make it hard for them to accept evolution as long as they understand the logic and can understand the point of view that I have from the class, which is that there are some interesting and otherwise hard to interpret findings in, in terms of human biology and human medicine that, that evolution illuminate and make understandable. And if they can understand that logic, then I, don't, I never ask them about their own personal beliefs either. 
For example, I think evolution explains a really critical thing to understand about medicine, and that is that nature is an idiot savant. That her brilliant solutions are brilliant, and her boneheaded solutions are boneheaded. That makes sense if you understand uh, the theory of evolution. It doesn't make sense if you think a perfect intellect designed everything in nature. Menstruation doesn't make a lot of sense. Why do stupid people rise to the top? Um, why do people eat fat, sugar, and uh, oil in amounts that give them cardiovascular disease and obesity and joint disease at a young age? Why would we do those things if we were perfectly designed? This is, this is why I love having you on the, on the podcast, Coffee, uh, and, and we are going to make this a more regular feature, I think, the, the two of us. Uh, but you always come up with examples that are just a little bit different from what, <laughs> the ones that I use. I think that's fantastic. But yeah, I, I, I agree. Clearly, the idea that there is a perfect or intelligent designer of our bodies uh, or biology in general uh, doesn't hold up to facts. Well, you know, I think this is a nice segue. Since we jumped in at the evolutionary end of the pool, I'll ask you, Joe, do you think that epi epigenetics, which was our topic today, is it a threat to evolutionary theory? And that's a good question. So I was a little bit nervous after we decided that we were going to talk about epigenetics a couple of days ago when we decided to do this podcast, in part because I'm not, I'm not really an expert in it, and we'll have to define our terms and, and really get into it a little bit. Uh, but the basic idea uh, behind the, the field of epigenetics is that there is a modification of you know, DNA transcription that occurs that in some ways kind of challenges the, the, a classical <clears throat> genetic uh, genes plus environment equals phenotype. Uh, situation in the classic Mendelian pattern of inheritance. So, well, does it modify it or does it explain it? After all, we assume there's some mechanism by which environment modifies phenotype. Yeah. This is that mechanism. It seems to me that, and in fact, the word epigenetics is apparently about a hundred years old. Although understanding the mechanisms of it is something like ten or twenty years old. Sure, and I think that we we certainly got into this uh, conversation. Well, just by explaining to your students a little bit about evolution and the and genetics and and how how things work, and we contrasted uh, sort of a Darwinian view with a Lamarckian view of evolution. Now, and I think a lot of people nowadays don't know about Lamarck. I gather it's not being taught in grade school anymore that there was that contest. What is a Lamarckian view of uh, gen of genetics? So, Lamarck is a it's French, right? Russian. Russian. All right. Biologist who accepted that that biological beings or species could change over time. So he was a fan of the idea of evolution. But he had a very different interpretation than, say, the classic Darwinian uh, view of evolution. And that is the, and the bottom line is that it's this inheritance of acquired characteristics and we can we can certainly lampoon this idea pretty easily because you can imagine that uh, um, the idea being that if certain things happen to you during your life that you might and then that changed your phenotype or something about your body that you would then pass that on to your offspring so 
Um, for instance, if the classic example being, you know, if a if a giraffe, a short short necked giraffe stretched its neck to reach the leaves of a tree, that it would just by by virtue of stretching its neck and making it a little bit longer and making that effort, it would then have an offspring with a longer neck. So that's kind of ridiculous, and we can certainly, you know, the the easy way to uh, puncture this idea is to say that you know we you know, in the hospital where I work at, at you know at, at UNM in the, in the ED and in, in your in your department too coffee we see patients that come in with traumatic injuries all the time with amputations of fingers and and digits and arms and diabetics lose their legs it doesn't mean that their offspring are more likely to be born without fingers or without without feet that's not what happens well you know in fairness uh, early on. A lot of intelligent people didn't find this ridiculous. The notion was that it took a lot of repetitions for the acquired traits to become hereditable. And um, even as recently as within our lifetime, when it was found that RNA molecules are involved in the encoding of memory from short-term to long-term, that led some people to speculate that your parents' memories are somehow stored in your brain, that there's such a thing as generational memory because RNA, after all, could be transmitted across generations, at least in principle, though I'm not sure we actually have any examples of that. So, but the other thing that Lamarck illustrates is the toxic effect of combining politics and science, because in most of the, uh, what we then would have called the free world, scientists tested ideas like this. But in the Soviet Union, where Lamarck worked, this was just state policy. He had a high enough rank in the in the Politburo that they just made his beliefs, the official beliefs of the country, and that was that. That's why it's so important that we don't have a political litmus test for what we teach in science classes. Otherwise, we're going to wind up teaching something as boneheaded as Lamarckian evolution. Or is it boneheaded? Does epigenetics vindicate Lamarck? Um. So just to just to make sure that we get our, our history right, so Jean Baptiste Lamarck, it was a French biologist. Okay. And uh, born. But it was in, the Soviet system that and, but the, canonized the, him. That canonized him. I agree. So he was he was a, a, a preceded Darwin, uh, born in 1744, uh, died 1829. Um, and of course, Charles Darwin published the Origin of Species in, in terms of generation after this in, in 1859, and he, I guess. <laughs> Uh, Darwin had had some some Lamarckian ideas that use and disuse did affect inheritance of features. So he didn't really understand genetics. He didn't didn't have a great grasp on on, on exactly how inherited characteristics went DNA from one generation to the next. Yet. Yeah, and then and Mendel, even though he was a contemporary of Darwin, they were they were unaware of each other. So that's uh, that's true. Um, the Russian fellow. Uh, was a, a plant geneticist who was favored by Stalin, Trofim Lysenko, and the reason why we can get mixed mix those things up is that is that they the Lysenko took these Lamarckian ideas and applied them to agriculture. I stand corrected. As you say that, I remember, uh, and I thank you for the correction. So Lysenko, he rejected Mendelian inheritance, didn't agree that there was the concept of a gene. So he had these very uh, heretical ideas, at least they would be heretical for the mainstream of, of Western thought. For but, us now. But uh, to the discredit of uh, the Russian system and, and Stalin, Stalin loved Lysenko and banished other geneticists that were that used more credible and 
evidence-based ideas when it came to agriculture. And it's thought that some of Lysenko's uh, embrace of Lamarckism contributed to some of the widespread famine that occurred uh, after collectivism and uh, this imposition of essentially a failed biological idea onto the uh, widespread you know, food production in, in the Soviet Union. So this is a great example, just as you mentioned, of, of not really applying critical thinking to science. And anytime politics gets involved in, in uh, science, science then, then bad things can happen. This has lessons, I think, for, for maybe modern United States of America. This very morning I was listening to, um, I was re-listening to uh, Stephen Colbert when he introduced the word truthiness. His right. parody character says, other people believe things based on facts, but I know things based on my gut. Yeah, sounds sounds too familiar. Yes. <laughs> and Apparently of course, we haven't outgrown that. We haven't outgrown that, and... and I was also you know, reading that we, we, we exist in our own little echo chambers. So even if you have a false belief, uh, if you're surrounded by people that have the exact same false belief, then it's very, very easy to uh, not think critically about it. Um, and unfortunately, the way that social media works now, the way that we tend to silo uh, ourselves by, uh, by politics and perhaps by class, um, it, it does, it, it, it's, not a, it's not a good trend. Uh, and it, it poses a challenge, I think, to people like us that really are interested in critical thinking. So I'm old enough to remember the introduction of the internet and when people began to communicate rapidly and readily and freely over the internet, I thought it would expand all of our understanding of the world that we live in, like the way that you looked up Lysenko just now and, and gave me that feedback. But instead, it turns out, and quite a lot of studies have shown this, we tend to look up people who agree with what we already thought. So rather than expanding our minds, it actually narrows them by making it easier and easier to find a this virtual cohort that substantiates whatever we already decided to believe. Yeah, it's altogether too easy to do that now. And especially with the rise of conspiracy theories and the, the diminution of the status of experts in society, and the fact that we don't really trust anybody or anything, it's it's very easy to essentially believe anything and then find some evidence for for that belief. Well, you strike me as the kind of guy who would believe in climate change just because of the evidence, but I know in my gut that it's wrong. Oh, are we really going to go there? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we have can, enough we can topics. We can certainly talk about climate change. You know, it's, inter it's interesting when people uh, try to rate the... The, the biggest threats to humanity, and there's this uh, strain of thought. It's proposed by people like Peter Thiel, Silicon Valley types, uh, like him and Elon Musk, that really the greatest threat to humanity is, is artificial intelligence and the rise of artificial intelligence, which we're not going to belabor on this podcast. There's plenty of other podcasts where you can find about the, the threat of, you know, of super intelligence and, uh, and, and how this is going to pose a threat to humanity, but it seems that the fact that we don't all agree that climate change is a problem is a problem, at least in my mind. This is something that has been around. The, the basic physics has been understood for over 100 years. People have been sounding the alarm. You can go back and find videos of people, uh, scientists warning about this from the 1950s, and certainly the fact, this is just the fact that this has become so embroiled in politics and that there's, there's so much misinformation out there. And the fact that smart people don't 
rank this as one of the greatest th- threats to humanity is, I think, a, a, a big problem. So Scott, but Brown yeah, but let's get to, let's get to this Florida, whole idea. Yeah, is actually building barricades against the increasing flooding of Miami at mm-hmm. the same time as he's denying climate change. I'm wondering right. how people. Like, does he not own a mirror? How do you live with yourself when you do things like that? Well, it'll be interesting. We're recording this uh, as Hurricane Irma is bearing down on South Florida, and it'll be very, very interesting to see what the what the end result is. If that has any impact on politics, uh, I, you know, I'm a little dismayed that I think that it, you know, even the people like him, they're so invested in this idea that uh, the climate change is not a problem. Uh, it's such a threat to their worldview of, um, you know, a Economy that's based on extraction and exploitation of resources and the burning of fossil fuels. That I think that people are gonna. It may not change people's minds as much as as we think. On the other hand, maybe maybe this hurricane might be just the evidence that's gonna push some people over the edge. The people that are persuadable. Will Rogers says it's hard to make someone see the truth when his paycheck depends on not seeing the truth. Yeah, that's a great great quote. That's for sure. But this, you know, this idea about you know, how do we appraise the evidence? How does science go forward? Uh, how, how, do, how do ideas make their way into the common culture? How do our students make sense of all of this? And, and what, what do they have to, have to learn? Uh, these, are, these are fascinating questions. And, of course, there is overlap. I would argue that probably most people that accept biological evolution by natural selection also accept climate change. And maybe most most scientists do this, and, and there may be a political overlap on that too. But this, uh, you know, we, we kind of got into this conversation thinking about um, an idea that some people use to challenge the the mainstream view of evolution by natural selection, and that is this idea of epigenetics. Right. So does it, in fact, vindicate, let's say, well, first of all, I think we should talk about what epigenetics is. We probably should have begun there. So what is is a copy? Well, we know that um, given the same set of genes, we can manifest differently. For example, twins, while they may appear identical, the longer you know them, the more individual they appear. Clearly, despite having the same genetic code, they manifest different phenotypes. One of them goes to the beach and comes back with a tan. One of them likes hamburgers and winds up fat, and so on down the line. And over time, one of them becomes perhaps conservative and one liberal. Although twins do that less than other matched pairs, they still do that at all, which means that they vary. Okay, well, how do they vary? The genetics code that we're born with is never fully expressed. We don't express every gene we have, and if we did, we wouldn't express them all all the time in equal amounts. For example, um, all of the cells in your body contain all of your DNA, but your muscle cells express that DNA, which is important to being a muscle cell, and your neurons express that DNA, which is important to the development of a neuronal cell. How do they know to do something different? They're much closer than two twins are. They live in the same environment, after all. They're exposed to the same nutrition, and so on. Well. That's because there are on-off switches for the different codes in the DNA. We can activate different parts of it. And the process of activating or inactivating sections of DNA is called epigenetics. Broadly, this principle has been... that something like this must be occurring has been known for a long time. 
but the mechanics of it have been coming to light faster and faster over the last decade or so and much of that research here at Sandia Labs so now we know for example that methylation of um, uh, histones which are the proteins DNA is wrapped around and cytosine frequently on the DNA code itself uh, for example act as off switches right and so 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 basically now that we understand something about this epi or above genetics epigenetics and the fact that it has a big impact on gene regulation and uh, and the transcription of RNA into proteins this it, it challenges a very very simplistic view that you know if you if you inherit a certain allele uh, let's, let's say a, a purple colored pea that your offspring are going to be purple so the the, the, the the classic Mendelian genetics that essentially made the argument that the which allele kind that, that one inherited had a, had a direct one-to-one -one impact on the phenotype or the what you what you observe but that is clearly not not the case and I think this you, you made a great point which is that of course you know twins differ and twins differ because of these environmental changes and that cells even if they're genetically identical in your body they can then develop differently into neurons or muscle cells that that clearly there's a, a big impact on you know the local environment for the cell for gene regulation and there's all these layer all these layered processes that go into this and that we we really are uh, remarkably impacted by by our environment and by some of these mechanisms of, of gene regulation that we call epigenetics so one way i kind of think about it is there's this factory and the factory can make a bunch of different stuff so there must be a control panel somewhere. Well, now we're just beginning to find the control panel. And that, to me, is very exciting from a medical standpoint. Think of the things we could do if we knew how to operate some of these epigenetics. And in fact, there already are some early medical applications, mostly having to do with treating certain very specific kinds of cancer. I believe pancreatic, some pancreatic, pancreatic cancers That's were cool. early wins on this one, for okay. example. Yeah. Um, well, but the, there the, are, the example I talked to your students about was the... Uh, the concept that your birth weight has a big impact on whether or not you get sick later in life. So this is the fetal origins of adult disease or developmental origins of adult uh, health and disease, uh, DOHAD, is what is the acronym for that. And the and as I was telling your students, the reason why this came about is a guy by the name of David Barker back in the 1980s noticed this really curious association. So he he knew that people that are really overweight and uh, have a lot of stomach fat as adults tend to get more heart disease so he really wanted to know well what's the relationship in in uh, for birth weight do babies that are born larger than than average do they get more more heart disease uh, later on in life and he found out basically remarkably found out the opposite pattern that the babies that were born small tended to have a higher rate of adult disease and things like diabetes and things like like cardiovascular disease so it's really the opposite pattern so remarkably if you're if you're born small that tends to change your whole developmental trajectory in a way that that favors you being sick later in life so essentially your genetic code can be activated to prepare you for a world in which there is adequate nutrition in which case you'd be optimized one way or a world in which there's inadequate nutrition in which case you'd optimize in a different way Right, so uh, there, and that—that's the idea behind that—is is called the thrifty uh, phenotype, 
So, you know, famously, a guy by the name of James Neal, also, this is back in the 60s, came up with this thrifty genotype idea that had to do with trying to figure out why it is that <clears throat> there's this uh, possible linkage between, um, you know, excess calories and then getting diabetes. And he, he argued that especially certain populations of humans, Pacific Islanders in, in particular, uh, that they may have experienced periodic famine during their evolutionary history that lead, that lead them to favor genes that that uh, um, conserve energy and then hold on to energy as fat, don't spend it as muscle or growth, that would tend to make these particular populations that have experienced famine maybe more likely to become obese and possibly diabetic also. Turns out that idea doesn't have much evidence for it. You can't go, you, there's no evidence that Pacific Islanders have suffered more famine than other groups. And so that led people to uh, come up with this new idea, kind of based on the Barker hypothesis, uh, called the thrifty phenotype. The thrifty phenotype says that, you know, if, if as a fetus you experience a certain input that, that tells you something interesting about, your, about the future state, then maybe uh, those, those inputs can, can change your body in a way that, that lead you to, again, hold on to energy as, as fat, particularly fat around the belly, uh, change the way that you deal with glucose and glucose metabolism that make you a little insulin resistant and more, more prone to diabetes. And all these things basically, uh, again, make you thriftier uh, and be better able to cope with uh, deprivation later in life. So that's, that's the thrifty phenotype, thrifty phenotype idea. Now, fascinatingly, this ties directly to where I first heard about epigenetics was that mothers who are maximally stressed during the pregnancy due to things like poverty, drug addiction, starvation, uh, in, they're in a war zone, stuff of that kind, their children are born with all of the uh, same, well not all of, but with many of the same epigenetic activations of their genes that mom had. That mom's epigenetic activations to adapt to a highly stressful environment were seen in the children, even if they were conceived after that event. So that this became a hereditable uh, trait for at least a generation or so, even though the gene sequence of the baby isn't affected by what happened to mom, the gene activation of the baby is affected. And in a way, we should have predicted that because when cells replicate in our body, they replicate also the epigenetic activation patterns. That is, what was methylated before is methylated now. Acetylated before is acetylated in the replicated version. Phosphorylated, there's actually several of these molecules, although what they have in common is that they're all very small and simple in common. Right. So, yeah, so again, the people that were interested in these, these fetal origins of adult health, one thing that they noticed is that, that babies that were born during famine and the, the Dutch hunger winter is a famous example of this. Mm -hmm. So when the Nazis invaded Holland, they uh, one of the things that happened is that essentially to punish the population, the, the population suffered um, inadequate nutrition. Uh, so there was a great deal of uh, widespread starvation. Um, babies that, that happened to be born during that period were born small and had less uh, you know calories delivered through the placenta into their bodies as they were growing. And so those, those babies exhibit exactly, exactly this pattern of increased risk for uh, later on diseases and actually increased mortality as an adult, uh, probably from that decreased, we call maternal investment during pregnancy. But what you're, what you're talking about is that remarkably, some of these things, they don't even require, um, they can happen even after the, the stress happens. So, so moms, 
mom's epigenetic profile can reflect a previous stress that can affect even future uh, offspring or, or babies. And what's even rem more remarkable is that not only does your early life ex experience affect your adult health, but some of these things even affect the next generation. So now, so now we're talking about there's a change in the germline somehow that seems to exhibit these epigenetic transfers. So in other words, a baby born to a mother who's undergone stress, that baby, when, when she grows up to be a mom, her babies can be changed because of her grandmother's experience. And that's really a trippy and amazing thing. Uh, to think about. And exactly that was seen in a Swedish population that had endured a terrible famine early in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. The grandchildren of that generation um, had differential lifespans depending on which grandparent experienced that famine, whether it was male or female. I think it was if the male grandparent, I may be switching the genders, but yeah. um, if, one, if one gender of grandparent experienced the famine, then the grandchildren had, had statistically significantly shorter lifespans. And if it was the other grandparent, it had a little or no effect on their lifespan. And it makes, at least, at least I, I, don't know, I don't know that, that study in particular, but it makes sense that uh, the maternal exposure should be more important, but may maybe it's not. You know, maybe, maybe, some, maybe you could imagine there might be some, some way in which these things could be encoded in sperm. But the egg is bigger. It's got more stuff. There's a bigger cell. And it has a, a more of an opportunity, it seems, for some of these epigenetic uh, transfer mechanisms to happen, if, if they do. And, and part of this is, is, remains an open question exactly how these features get, get transferred from one generation to the next. So you know, the point of bringing this up is that this sounds kind of Lamarck, Lamarckian, right? Here we're talking about the inheritance of acquired characteristics. So we can lay Darwinism to rest now. Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> so does do you know, do we then just throw in the towel and, and not teach Mendelian genetics? Do we do we say that Darwin had it all wrong? No, because actually the um so-called Darwinian model, and by the way, there are no Darwinists any more than anybody ever called himself a hippie or a Jesus freak or a redneck. Those are names other groups apply. Um, Darwin, evolutionary Darwin didn't call scientists. himself a Darwinist. <laughs> and neither does any evolutionary scientist. Partly because Darwin's theories were a beginning point, but they are not the current state of the art. And everybody seems to forget that when they use the word Darwinist. So, no, we don't need to refer back to Darwin as the Bible of evolution. It's, right. it's, not, it's not a, a much text. more sophisticated science now. Although I would argue that the core predictions in the origin of species and the examples that Darwin used, they hold up remarkably well. They really do. And they so correctly this, describe... this book, published in 1859, yeah. that you can still... It uh, still has a lot of you know, validity, even now. Well, and he was one of a bunch of people who realized that there was some sort of evolutionary process going on. Or, or even the idea of natural selection wasn't unique to him. What he did, yeah, his Alfred genius that Wallace. he contributed was that he assembled the data in such a way as to show clearly how this was happening. So we might say that he's one of the uh, greatest scientific communicators of all time. Absolutely, and right? one of the great empiricists as well. He wasn't an armchair scientist. He went out and actually studied the finches on you know, the well, Galapagos Islands. And then famously spent uh, all of his time uh, for, for a decade or so studying barnacles. And it's yeah. one of his, yeah. his later books. So apparently one of Darwin's kids uh, went over to visit... Again, a family that was friendly with the with the Darwins, 
and uh, I forget which which of his children they was playing with with the boy there, and he asked the the neighbor boy, so where does your dad study his barnacles? <laughs> thinking that yeah, all par- all all fathers must have their little yeah. uh, their little home <laughs> office and and study where they they, they examine barnacles under the microscope, as Darwin did. Yeah, so you you make an excellent point though, Joe, that the various um, refinements that have been made to the theory of evolution have never actually shaken its foundations. They've only added to our understanding of it. And I would put epigenetics squarely into this category. Well, the notion too. that there's a difference between genotype and phenotype is not new, not revolutionary, and does not shake any foundations. And the idea that now we have beginning to have some ideas of the mechanisms by which that occurs... Okay, fine. We knew there'd be a mechanism. Now we have a better idea of what right. it is. That's totally consistent with what we expected. Yeah. So the, the epigenetics explains something which we can observe, observe about developmental plasticity. In yeah. other words, you can have you can have the identical genome, but then when confronted with different environmental inputs, it can set you off on a, on a develop, developmental path that can be a little bit different, and end up with a phenotype which is quite different. And this this doesn't really pose a challenge in my view to Darwinism. Uh, at all, and certainly doesn't doesn't detract from any of the importance of uh, evolution by natural selection whatsoever. And the the key insight it seems to me is that of course you'd want to have a little bit of plasticity. In fact, that's going to make you better fit to your environment, at least under certain circumstances. Maybe mm-hmm. in others, maybe less fit. But in general, this can be a route towards better adaptation uh, to to the environment. And it, it's it's a the fact that we have a capacity to change our development in light of, of differences and changing environments uh, seems to me a, a very, very uh, good thing. Um, and what's, what's remarkable is that this whole idea and the whole field of epigenetics, some of the best evidence does come from uh, plant biology. If you imagine, I'm looking, I'm, if we're sitting in your backyard and we're looking at these trees here, trees, they don't have the ability to run away. So they really are at the mercy of their environment. And so the tree, tree epigenetics is, is a it's a pretty well-described thing. And if, if, a, if a seedling grows up in the setting of drought, it's going to change the morphology of the tree and, and a lot about, it, about, its, uh, about features in, in, in when they become mature. And this is clearly makes, makes trees better <laughs> in terms of their ability to, to cope with uh, changes in the environment, especially for an organism that is um, not mobile and can't run away or escape from uh, in, environmental threats. Well, and um, a new area of um, science that's exploding because of epigenetics is epigenetic mapping. So twins, for example, are very epigenetically similar to each other right after they're born, and they diverge progressively over a lifetime. The number of epigenetic changes in our DNA, the amount of methylation in our DNA, for example, increases over a lifetime. now, I'm talking about methylation, but really, let us say, uh, markers for epigenetic um, activation and deactivation, because actually there's several different molecules. So I'm using methylation as a stand-in for all the other molecules. Sure, that's the best, here. the best described one. The best described one. So those patterns change over our lifetime in such a way that you could epigenetically map a single cell and say, this person was middle-aged or elderly or young. And... Uh, identical twins who remain genetically identical all their lives become epigenetically less identical 
in a linear fashion over the course of their lifetime. And that's just another way of saying that, you know, again, the things that we can observe, the traits that we can observe in, the, in terms of physiology and, and brain and behavior, uh, that they're going to differ the longer uh, after birth that, that you go. That, of course, we are, we are molded in some way by, by life experience. And that makes, that makes some sense. Backing up a step or two, we were talking about the transmission of some of these epigenetic changes along with the gametes. Again, the DNA code didn't change, just the activation pattern on it. Well, that turns out to have a gender preference. That is, the egg has a different pattern, uh, general pattern of epigenetic activation than the um, sperm does. Now, I only read a reference to this study. I didn't read the original study, and this is brand new information for me. But interestingly, at least I read a reference to the idea that the patterns of expression on the sperm tend to favor energy utilization by the developing embryo. That is to say, the embryo um, activates those genes which require more energy and allow it to develop more uh, robustly, whereas the maternal epigenetic pattern tends to minimize energy consumption. That makes sense because for the mother, surviving, even surviving at the cost of her fetus, improves her chance to the maximum number of offspring in the next generation. But for the father, even if it's at the cost of the mother's life, having his offspring survive improve his chance of transmitting gametes to the next generation. Now, whether all this is actually true and holds up in multiple other papers and is reproducible, I don't know. I'm not that well, far into a, it. Uh, I'll say a classic domain of evolutionary medicine, and it deserves its own podcast probably, and we probably should <laughs> do this. But uh, the, guy, the guy who, at least as far as I'm concerned, has had the biggest impact on on that idea, which is also has to do with imprinting, so how genes get expressed differently depending on their environment. And in this case, we're talking about how genes get expressed differently depending on whether they are inherited from their mother or their father. So this, this is a, a, you know, a parent of origin effect, of, of a genomic imprinting. And so David Haig, who's at Harvard University, he published a paper back in the early 1990s that described how this genomic imprinting has a big impact on the developing fetus, even in utero, and how it has a big impact on maternal health. So it affects things like uh, gestational diabetes, whether uh, whether mo mothers have hyperglycemia during uh, during pregnancy. It impacts preeclampsia and pregnancy-induced hypertension, which is the the phenomenon which is a little bit less severe than actual preeclampsia. So these are these are uh, really really cool features, and, and but your 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 idea you had it spot on, which is that the exact same gene under certain these when these when these genes exhibit these imprinting phenomena and these parent of origin effects, you can predict which direction they're going to go in, because basically if the if for these imprinted set of genes if they're inherited from the father, they tend to favor resource extraction from the mother, so more energy delivery to the baby, and you end up getting bigger babies. Um, if the same gene is inherited from mom, then we see effects that tend to favor a little bit, uh, we'll say stinginess, less resource delivery to the developing fetus. And these two things tend to balance each other out. So during a healthy pregnancy, with regard to these imprinted genes, the two the two features balance each other out, and you end up with a healthy fetus. When we see problems, there's where we see duplications. If the maternal genes are actually duplicated, uh, or if, uh, on the other hand, if the 
opposing uh, parent, if we see deletions, then things can get out of whack. And then you, then, then we see uh, syndromes, uh, Beckwith-Weidemann syndrome is an example of this, in which um, these parent of origin effects are essentially unmasked. And that really can lead to um, some very serious diseases. So totally cool stuff, really remarkable uh, area of interest. I am amazed when I talk to medical students that they don't know this and that it's just not part of their normal it's um, new-ish stuff, and the applications of it are early. You know, we're talking 80s and 90s. Not yeah, that, that's a long time ago. That's that's ancient history when it comes to science. Well, so even I would say that, and maybe you're about to correct me, and that would be great. Um, in terms of turning this into medical applications, something practical that I would do for my patient or advise my sure. patient some hints, but they're pretty limited right now. Uh, we know that a high-intensity interval training alters the epigenetic uh, activation of genes within muscle fibers. In a way which is healthy. In a way which is healthy and positive. Yeah. And that this effect is greater later in life than earlier in life, apparently. Yeah. Um, which is a strong argument, by the way, for continuing to exercise over the entire lifetime. But... Uh, do we have other so that's great advice I mean that's advice I can give my patients mm -hmm. yes go ahead and exercise you'll actually change the gene expression in your muscles right but I mean that's not broad okay well so I'll give you some some concrete uh, pieces of advice that, that derive exactly from this so one is this this will be a shout out to the pediatricians and the, the folks you know, even the emergency physicians that specialize in kids um, public health professionals that are interested in childhood development and the OBs out there that are interested in uh, uh, maternal uh, and fetal health that the, the basic take-home point from this is that these early life experiences are important so the more that we can imp, you know make an intervention in a positive way early in life uh, has a potential to do too good to do good and <laughs> again this is an area where we could make a whole podcast out of it it turns out that simply you know doing a nutritional um, intervention in a, in a poor country and uh, this this was was done recently where they, they just gave moms more calories during pregnancy and they found out that that indeed they it did help with birth weight but it didn't actually help help moms because what it, the biggest impact that it had was that the interbirth interval decreased so they ended up having more babies and actually <laughs> hurt mom's health so sometimes these things can backfire but certainly making you know doing a smart intervention that that promotes uh, the, the optimum conditions during pregnancy and later in life is going to have a big impact on, uh, on, on your baby. With regard to uh, preeclampsia, um, one of the things which is, which is totally cool and kind of remarkable is this observation that, uh, that moms who have had, we'll say, a, a history of being exposed to dad's antigens, so the longer you, know, you can imagine a more, a more monogamous situation in which there's been uh, a Lot, lots of exposure to, to semen antigens, so during lots of lots of sex over a long period of time, decreases the likelihood of preeclampsia. So this is this is an, an interesting thing um, because it has implications for uh, for barrier contraception like condoms. And that, in fact, using using condoms actually increases the risk of, of uh, preeclampsia. That's interesting, but so not using is, them increases the incidence of uh, HIV. STDs. Yeah, and all, HIV. all kinds of things. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's a trade-off there. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that people are thinking about this. Uh, in again, we probably don't have time to get into the details here. But basically, it makes the the genomic conflicts that that occur during pregnancy that some of these things 
rely on a previous exposure to, to paternal antigens. And the bottom line is that a, a uh, that there's less conflict during pregnancy between, um, say, mom and dad or mom and dad's genes. There's less conflict if that couple has been together longer. And the way the body knows this is that it has to do with the exposure to, to semen uh, proteins. Is so the protective really, really cool. effect exposure to semen in general or to that no. same consistent partner's semen same, over Same time? partner, yeah. So a change in partners increases the risk of preeclampsia. So monogamous relationship yeah. decreases the risk of uh, preeclampsia. Yeah. But um, what right. would once have been called promiscuity might yeah. increase the but the, risk. but the the amazing thing is, so if you're monogamous and you rely on barrier methods of contraception, then you take off the condom, try to get pregnant, Actually, the risk of pregnancy may actually be as Could high as a brand new partner. It may actually may actually backfire in some ways. So again, I don't that this phenomenon, it relates to the overarching uh, uh, problem or, or issue of of genomic conflicts during pregnancy, and the idea that there should be a conflict between, between mom and dad in the outcome of a certain pregnancy. Evolutionary biology predicts that it may not actually have a imprinting. Uh, implication, but it might, and I think that we don't we don't understand quite the mechanisms of these things exactly. But for things that we care about, um, the course of a pregnancy, whether or not someone gets preeclampsia, understanding some of these dynamics is critically important. So those are just a couple of examples, and there probably there are, there are many many more. But hey, before we kind of get too deep in the weeds here, I did want to talk a little bit about this idea, and you you alluded to it that you know that babies that uh, are ex- exposed to deprivation during the womb, that they change their development in such a way that makes them better able to cope with deprivation after they're born. So this is called the PAR, or Predictive Adaptive Response. And it's been championed by uh, some uh, important people in the evolutionary medicine world, Peter Gluckman among them, who wrote a influential New England Journal article that I have in front of me. Gluckman, Hansen, Cooper, and Thornburg, Effective in Utero and Early Life Conditions on Adult Health and Disease. So very few evolutionary medicine hypotheses or concepts have have gotten highlighted in the New England Journal, but this is one of them. Published in 2008, uh, very influential work. Uh, Peter Gluckman's done a lot of amazing stuff on this. But to the point that this in utero experience predicts future life conditions, that's an area that actually is very controversial. Controversial how? What's the controversy? So the controversy is that just because even if mom has some kind of deprivation during pregnancy, they may not have any influence on whether the child, the developing adolescent or, or child is exposed to deprivation later in life. Maybe it does. It's a testable hypothesis. So some of Gluckman's peers would say that this effect isn't occurring at all? Uh, that's right. So famously, Jonathan Wells, uh, who actually was one of our keynote speakers at the recent uh, evolutionary medicine conference that we held in the Netherlands, he has argued that, in fact, it doesn't. there's no correlation whatsoever, that future conditions are not predicted by this early life exposure. And in fact, the idea that that the body is shaped in a way that allows it to better cope with, say, famine or malnutrition later in life, that just perhaps isn't so, or that, or at least that the evidence isn't there for it. I would argue this is not the downside of science, it's the upside. Totally. It's this vigorous competition in the marketplace of ideas that allows the best hypotheses, yeah. hopefully, at any given time to rise to the top. 
Are there political influences and the grand old man effect and influential speakers? Sure there are. It's not perfect. Right. But that we have these debates is what makes science so freaking great. I yeah. <laughs> yeah. Teach the controversy. No. Teach the controversy. <laughs> in, this, in, this, in this in this this is exactly how science should work. Yes. And I am grateful to Peter Gluckman and uh, and his body of work. And I'm, I don't care who wins I'm, this I'm debate, they to, both contributed to our knowledge. To, to JC Wells, who's yes. done uh, also an amazing 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 and, 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 and important work. However it boils out, yeah. both of their input on this has helped us more deeply understand the questions. So of course I got my own spin on this. Okay. Which is you know, maybe maybe it isn't true that a little bit of we'll talk about say placental insufficiency, so a little decreased, you know, blood flow and, and glucose delivery to the developing fetus. Maybe that doesn't have a relationship as to whether uh, that offspring is going to be born into a world of deprivation. Maybe maybe that, that 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 relationship isn't there. But I'll tell you one thing: one one set of inputs which is important, and this gets to my my interest in the microbiome, because when I was in medical school and I attended some of the first uh, vaginal births that I that I saw. One thing that you realize is that poop happens. That babies that are born, they get exposed to a whole lot of microbes. You don't even know that. I heard you fainted. <laughs> I've seen that happen too. <laughs> but yeah, there's there are babies that are born vaginally. They get exposed to not only microbes in the vaginal canal, but they get they get exposed to uh, fecal microbes too. This is just a feature, and and certainly. The fact that you and I are here mean that there's an unbroken line of successful reproduction and and uh, and uh, <laughs> growth and development to the to reproduction over and over again, which has involved lots of exposure to microbes. So, one of the things that that baby is actually exposed to in utero are microbial antigens and microbial metabolites. These are floating around in the bloodstream. Some of them get transferred with the placenta. Mm-hmm. And so even when the placenta filters out the microbe, yeah. still some of the antigens the and metabolites there. get through. So in other words, baby knows something about the microbial environment, uh, which is directly, directly predictive of what that baby's going to be exposed to at the time of birth. So they get vaccinated in utero. Kind of. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. So not only does baby know something about the microbial environment of mom, but baby knows something about it's the exposure, which is going to be directly relevant to that baby and may actually impact the whole development of its own microbiome. So we know that babies born by C-section are different than babies born by uh, vaginal, both in terms of phenotypes like asthma, but also in terms of the development of their microbiota. Cool stuff. So so this has been, I'm not the first person to, to talk about this, but this seems to be an important thing, that this microbial exposure does get transferred. So not only do the signals get transferred before birth, but the microbes themselves get transferred at the time of birth. And this can explain some of these transgenerational effects. And some of those microbes may even stay with the mom all the way until she, uh, to, to her, her girl offspring, become mothers themselves. This may explain some of the grandmother effects that we're, that we're seeing here. Maybe. Now, I read with interest about the um, studies in which they smeared cesarean-delivered babies with microbes from mother's uh, uterus and perineum. But um, it seemed to me that after some initial enthusiasm, that didn't seem to be panning out. What do you know about that? So that's work uh, done by uh, Maria Bello Dominguez um, at, at NYU and her husband Martin Blazer and Rob Knight and others. They've done work uh, <clears throat> essentially piloting this idea that if 
there's a problem with being born by C-section. And part of that problem is you're not exposed at the time of birth to beneficial microbes in the birth canal. And that, I think that, that that hypothesis actually has some legitimacy. Uh, it makes so it's they, a little reasonable done, hypothesis. They've just done a tiny little pilot of, of some babies born by C-section swabbing the swabbing the babies um, at the time of birth, and they've shown that the the microbiota uh, it does does differ uh, as a result of this procedure, and it might be a restoration of the, the normal situation and make the baby's microbiome better in a, in some way. But it's too early to know the long-term effects of that. It's too early to know whether these babies uh, are going to have less asthma, HOP, urticaria, rashes, and not, not to mention things like heart disease, diabetes, and obesity later in life. But there's good reason to think that, that the, the underlying concept of the microbes help direct some of these developmental pathways, some of that, it seems legit. <laughs> we, and, and we've talked about this before, the fact that microbes have a huge impact on whether you become obese or not. Here's an, we'll call it epigenetic or, you know, phenomenon that, that has a big impact on the phenotype and, and, and really seems to be remarkably important. So again, I don't see any conflict between this and thinking that evolution by natural selection, the, the core idea that Darwin had, I don't see any conflict there at all. Uh, to me, this is just a remarkable new layer of interest and amazingness that helps explain kind of why, why we are the way we are. I agree. Darwin and Mendel knew that something was transmitting information from one generation to the next, yeah. but they had no knowledge of DNA. When DNA yeah. came along, it didn't undermine what they said. It just explained what they already knew was happening. And yeah. I see epigenetics as being exactly in that family. Exactly. Um, you did say something earlier that I wanted to get back to though, before right. we wrap up. You pointed out that uh, in this study where they fed the moms more, it backfired and harmed the mothers. Yeah. For a reason people didn't see coming ahead of time. Complex systems are complex. It turns out there are already alternative health providers who are claiming they can give you advice on how to modify your own epigenetics for a longer, healthier, happier, more cosmic life. So you may, may have heard me sigh. I just sighed right there. But, but keep going. <laughs> I want to emphasize that as far as I can tell, nobody, not even the core researchers, the people at Sandia and so forth, nobody right now knows enough to be able to give you any kind of lifestyle recipe based on epigenetics. A few things. Good nutrition, young, you know, don't eat the wrong foods, try not to be too stressed during your pregnancy, high-intensity interval training, a handful of things we could talk about. But even those recognize that um, we haven't done randomly, you know, random controlled uh, clinical trials and so forth. And so w we need to be careful that people come away from this podcast with a clear understanding that a lot of this stuff is not yet ready for prime time and that people who over-extrapolate from these fascinating and tantalizing scraps are not qualified providers. Well, I'm just funny you mentioned that because I got an email this morning and this is from, I'm on a somehow a mailing list from a functional medicine uh, provider. I'm gonna, not going to name her, but it talks about, she's offering something called a methylation panel that you can send in your blood and you can find out something about uh, homocysteine in your methylation cycle and do an accurate evaluation of your health <laughs> and more methylation is better. Methylation is great. So this is, so basically you're right. Some uh, functional medicine providers, whatever that means, alternative complementary providers, they've taken this idea and run with it. 
And in some ways, you know, I guess I'm of two minds about this, that I can understand why some alternative providers are interested in this, because this is essentially is a, uh, a crack in the door that mm -hmm. opens the idea that there could be some of these other interventions that one could do that perhaps an alternative provider could provide. Which I actually do agree with that. And I think, yeah, I think that that's, that's sort of the, the rationale for, for doing it. And at this point, we can't necessarily say that they're right or wrong. There may be, there may be a lot of, uh, there may be some validity to some of these interventions that do take advantage of some of these imprinting epigenetic phenomena. Even a blind pig finds a truffle, but I think it's important to understand that we're not at a point where we can make evidence-based recommendations of this sort for most, except for a very few things. Sure, I, I, you know, even though I want to, I want to argue with you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna agree with you on that point, <laughs> for sure. Well, as usual, I learned quite a bit. Even got corrected a little bit today. Thank you so much. Yeah, I got a little Lysenko versus uh, Lamarck. Um, I had to listen. I had to. By the refresh. way, in a fist fight, who would you pick, Lysenko or Lamarck? Oh, I, well, Lysenko was was backed by Stalin, so. And uh, he came yeah. from, say, you know, from that nasty, right. cold, hard country. He, he looks like a kind of a rough character, I have to say. Yeah, Lamarck was French. I think Lysenko would win. I think so too. <laughs> well, good. This may be a good time to call it. Thanks so much, uh, Coffee. We we will do this again for our audience. And again, we just scratched the surface. Neither one of us is a geneticist or an epigeneticist. This is just one of the areas of biomedicine and of evolutionary biology that seems like it has a great deal of importance, both to the you know, emerging field of evolutionary medicine, but also you know, medicine generally and biology generally. So very cool stuff. As always, Joe, the more I chat with you, the smarter I get. Thanks. I feel likewise. Thank you.